Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Joe Winebanks, and me, Kimberly Atkins Store. Joyce Vance is away this week, but we can't wait for her to come back and return to us next week. Today, we'll talk about the midterms that are upcoming and the threats to our elections and democracy. We'll also talk about the Supreme Court oral arguments in the Harvard and UNC affirmative action cases and what they can mean beyond education. And we'll talk about the latest on the legal challenges facing Trump world. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But even more than that... There's some really super exciting news. On December 3rd, we will publish our 100th full podcast episode. Can you believe it? It's already been 100. To celebrate this anniversary, we want to hear from you, our listeners, and invite you to answer this question. Through our first 100 full episodes, what's the most important thing you've learned from Hashtag sisters in law. Please share your biggest learnings or takeaways with us on Twitter and Instagram and use the hashtag sisters in law 100. That's hashtag sisters in law 100. Hashtag sisters in law 100. We'll be sharing some of our favorites on social media leading up to our December 3rd episode and during the 100th full episode on the 3rd. It's very, very exciting, ladies. Congratulations to you all in advance. Yeah, thanks. And you too. I've learned, you know, the most interesting thing I've learned is um, that Jill once worked for the CIA. I think that's pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) Among many other interesting things. I think like 99% of the interesting things I've learned have been about Jill. Yeah, same. Oh, no. God. You're embarrassing me. (laughs) But uh, I also wanted to talk about something else with you ladies, because this is also an important weekend, because everybody's going to fall back. Well, I think maybe not everybody in Arizona, but everybody else is going to fall back and get an extra hour of sleep or rest or time to meditate or whatever you want to use it for. So I want to ask you guys, what are you going to, how are you going to use your extra hour this weekend, Jill? Would you have something in mind? Well, probably I'll really just use it to sleep because I never get enough of that. But I also am going to be thinking about in that extra hour whether we should have daylight savings time or not. And there's been some very interesting articles recently about what it would mean to farmers, what it would mean to how your brain works. And there doesn't seem to be such an easy answer about whether having that extra hour of daylight matters one way or the other. So I'm going to think yeah, about Yeah, that's really that. interesting, Jill. You know, I know um, the Boston Globe's editorial board and a lot of other editorial boards have weighed in on this. We came out saying we should just do daylight savings time and leave it because there's a lot of disagreement over whether standard or daylight savings time is, ba- is better. And there are valid arguments on both sides. But one thing I think we can all agree on is that the back and forth is always awful. Like the, whether, you know, it just throws you off to have the time change. So I think... I think you should pick one and just stick with it, you know? But anyway, Barb, how about you? How are you going to spend this uh, extra hour we get when we go back to standard time? I will probably spend that hour very dazed and confused because I'm in California. I'm flying (laughs) home very early Sunday morning. So I have to navigate not only the time difference of the three hours, but then the fall back hour. Do I add an hour or subtract an hour to get to the airport? And you know, whenever I have to get up really early, I always like stress out during, like I wake up in the middle of the night and I look at the clock, did I oversleep? And now I'm gonna have to like calculate all this, all this stuff. Like did my watch already switch back? It's... 
So I, I, I think confusion is likely how I will spend that hour. How about oh, you? Oh, that's really funny. You know, I think I am actually going to participate uh, in a little extra sleep myself if I can. I've been having trouble sleeping. I am fighting some sort of non-COVID uh, infection. I've taken a couple of tests. It's not COVID, but something respiratory. And uh, if you hear it in my voice, that's what it is. I apologize for that. It makes it really hard to sleep. So I think I'm grateful that we get an extra hour this weekend. I'm going to take advantage of it. Midterm elections are Tuesday at long last, and President Joe Biden recently spoke out from the Oval Office to warn the American people about the dangers of election disruption and political violence. And that message came, of course, in the wake of the attack on the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Kim, we've seen candidates up and down the ballot across the country who either deny the results of the 2020 presidential election or say they won't commit to accepting the results on Tuesday if they lose. What do you think that strategy is all about? Well, I think it's twofold or at least twofold, right? Because we saw this strategy since 2016 when Donald Trump was running for president the first time. And he was just like, you know, if, it, if it, it's going to be fraud, Dems are going to try to steal this election. And I think he was expecting to lose and was trying to set up the some base saving in the in the event that that happened. Now, of course, fast forward now, past an insurrection, there is a litmus test among many Republicans running that they have to support absolute baseless, false, uh, completely made up claims of election fraud in order to get Trump's uh, to get Trump's blessing and this idea that fraud is happening is an essential part of that. So I think that's one reason. And I think the other reason is the same reason that Trump did it initially is to tr sort of try to set up something if they lose to keep the election going, to continue to cast out and certainly to make it seem like perhaps they didn't actually lose when they did. But all of this is so damaging to democracy, especially if people distrust uh, elections and politicians so much or are fed so much negative lies about them that it does result in violence. Um, I just think it's just beyond reprehensible to do that. Yeah, it's been so disturbing to see, you know, what at least appears to me to be so many Republicans who cast doubt on the 2020 election just to signal their loyalty to the group. And, you know, like look at Liz Cheney, ousted from office for you know, daring to suggest that Donald Trump didn't win the, the 2020 election. It's, it's really disturbing. Well, let's talk about a couple of the states and some of the uh, activity that's actually going on there. Jill, let me ask you about Arizona. Um, in, in that state, we've seen poll watchers, some armed and wearing you know, camo fatigues, monitoring drop boxes, uh, you know, cl claiming to be on the lookout for fraud. Um, and, and this week, a judge intervened. Can you tell us about that? Yes, and let me start by saying I love Arizona. Some of my best friends either live there full-time or part-time, and it's one of the best places for hiking and just, it's a, it's a great place. But politically, it is really a mess. And you have a judge who, in this case, the same judge issued two conflicting opinions. He first said, no, it's free speech, they can do it. And then on second look, he said, no, actually, voter rights have some play here, and you cannot be dressed in camo 
and be within 250 feet of the uh, drop box. They were definitely intimidating voters. They were not only just sitting there dressed in Kevlar vests and masks and, and camouflage and weapons. They had weapons, but they were following people who dropped off the ballads. They were taking pictures of their cars and their license plates and following them sometimes all the way home. So it was really starting to suppress the vote as well it should. If I saw someone in camouflage and weapons at my polling place, I would think twice before entering that polling place. So that's what was happening. Luckily, the judge has now intervened and said, no, they can't dox the people. They, he set up a, a lot of rules, including they can't be that near it, and they can't talk to them and yell at them as they were doing. So hopefully that will hold and the leader of one of the groups that was doing this has told her people to stand down. Yeah, you know, I, I'm sure some of these people really believe uh, the lies they're being told, but um, I, I also think it is just the um, the product of propaganda and disinformation. You know, there's that um, that movie uh, set in Arizona. Hey, that would be a good uh, yeah, book, Barbara. Right. <laughs> it's, you can tell it's my obsession. It's on my mind, disinformation and politics. Um, but uh, Jill, that movie uh, that is uh, about Arizona called 2000 Mules, uh, which yeah. some election deniers say depicts massive voter fraud in that state. Even uh, former Attorney General William Barr you know, debunked it and said it was nonsense. But how is that movie being used to stoke beliefs of voter fraud? Because they keep saying it's <laughs> true and that the reason that they're monitoring these ballot boxes is because people are carrying illegal ballots. And one of the things the judge said specifically was that they had to put up on their website a statement that you can drop off multiple ballots. It is perfectly legal. If you are in the same household or if you are a caregiver, you may drop off someone else's ballot. So again, the judge tried to deal with this. Um, and, and I just, in terms of your book and, and also just because I want to mention this, I got in the mail now a, quote, newspaper called the North Cook, I live in Cook County, North Cook News. And it is not a newspaper. It is a uh, campaign rag that has terrible, awful disinformation about our governor, uh, Governor Pritzker, and it's parading as a newspaper. And I know that a lot of people are gonna read this and go, oh, I can't vote for Pritzker, he's a criminal. And it, it talks about the Safety Act, which is the, no, the we've dropped cash bail in Illinois starting January 1st. It talks about all these people who are out on the streets who are gonna kill you because they were let out of jail because they are, are now out for no bail. So it's not just in Arizona, it's even in Illinois that this fake news is getting there. And I, I just know someone's gonna believe that. And while they might not vote for the other party, they are gonna stay yeah. home. And that's yeah, really right. scary. It can be just as, as effective. Well, Kim, let's turn to our home state of Michigan, um, where there's also a lot of activity going on. There has been active recruiting of poll watchers by conservative groups, and their goal really seems to be disruption. The Michigan Supreme Court stepped in this week to overturn a court order 
that seemed really destined for chaos. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I'm really, I'm, I'm worried about our state, Barb, because mm-hmm. uh, we saw what happened in 2020 there of the people standing outside the the uh, election center, um, you know, shouting to stop the count. And this just seems like an extension of that. So there was a, 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 a challenge, a very poorly done legal challenge. This is going to be a theme in this show, like a lot of bad Poorly done legal <laughs> challenges, but yeah, but I fear that the next time around they'll be more organized and they'll yeah. get it. You know they'll learn from these mistakes. But it was a late challenge trying to throw out a series of election guidance for poll, poll watchers that have been put in place um, by the Secretary of State there from these conservative groups. And you're absolutely right. The whole idea was to create confusion, upend the rules around governing poll watchers, what their qualifications are, what they can and cannot do. Right before the election after they've already been trained right like the the chaos was the point here um and the michigan supreme court stepped in this week um a lower court actually granted this uh this uh challenge and and the michigan supreme court stepped in and said no no but they did it on the basis that look whatever issues there might be with this guidance it's too late to launch this now these poll uh these poll workers have already been trained. The election is already about to take place. These are the same rules that were in place for the primary that just happened a few months ago and nobody launched a challenge then. Leave everything in place. We'll do the election. And if you have an actual substantive claim to this stuff, bring it up after the fact. But you can't do it right before an election like this, which I think was the right idea. I also think that these claims are ridiculous and nonsense. Um, but at the very least, even if on a procedural uh, basis, the Supreme Court prevented this challenge. Well, speaking of um, bad lawsuits you, you mentioned, <laughs> did you see this lawsuit filed by um, Christina Caramo? Oh. She's the Republican candidate for Secretary of State. She's an election denier, and she has asked a judge to reject certain absentee ballots. If the person did not apply in person, their absentee ballot should be rejected. But here's the, the important part. Only in Detroit. I wonder why uh, that is. Yeah, what do you make of that what, from what a person who wants to be our Secretary of State? Oh my gosh, what is the thing about Detroit that does not look like the others when it comes to polling places in in, uh, in Michigan? Yeah, it's really, it's awful. It's this attempt, much like we saw in 2020, which also challenged Detroit, right? But not other parts of the state. Um, to challenge primarily where Democratic voters are. Michigan, uh, Detroit is by far, of course, uh, the city with the highest black population in all of Michigan and one of the highest, one of the blackest cities in the country. So of course, they're the people that they're targeting. And it was an attempt to <laughs> to throw out any absentee ballot that was not picked up in person by the voter. You know, if anybody... If somebody lives in a different state for part of the year, if somebody's in the military, if for whatever reason they ask for an absentee ballot because that's why you would ask for one, you're not there at the moment. Uh, they were trying to get them thrown out. But again, only in Detroit. There were nine hours of hearings that, according to media reports, were absolutely bonkers in this case. And But that effort uh, was turned down as well. I will say, in, in reading about this case, um, I was reading, I believe, the Free Press, uh, the Detroit Free Press account. And one thing I really liked, and we we're talking about disinformation in News Jill, was at the end of every story that I read, 
that was about the election. At the very end, there were just a couple lines saying when the polling, what uh, that polling would be on Tuesday, what time the polls would be open, just basic information in every story about the election to give anybody who read that story what they need to be able to vote. I think that's fabulous. I think that all local news organizations should do that because that's really important, especially at a time like this. So I commend them. That's great. I didn't notice that. I probably read the same articles. That's that's terrific. You know, the other thing that I, um, I I think we need to do, all of us, anybody who has a voice, is to prepare the public for the expectation that you might not know who won before yes. you go to bed. You might not even know the next morning. That doesn't mean it's fraud. It just means that we now have a lot more people voting uh, absentee or by mail or other methods that can't be counted in some states like Michigan until after the polls close at eight o'clock. And so necessarily that work can't be done. And often we don't have a final count until um, it may be many days later. And so we have to make sure that people don't you know, hijack the outcome to say there it's fraud because first the Republicans were leading and then suddenly the Democrats were winning. Well, you know, that's probably because more people who are Democrats are voting by mail or absentee. So uh, prepare yourselves, members of the public. It may not be Tuesday night or even Wednesday morning when we know the outcome. And that does not mean there is fraud. Um, let me ask each of you if you have any thoughts about what our listeners can do to help support democracy. I know sometimes we all feel like, gosh, what can one person do? Certainly we can all vote, but do you have any other suggestions about what people can do? Well, I would just say know that information, know your rights, know things, not just where your polling station is, what the hours are, when you can go and educate yourself about these candidates and the issues that are on the ballot, but know what to do in the event that you face a problem. We have seen that people have already been removed from voting rolls. They have been, um, um, they, there's fears about intimidation and everything else. Um, know what your rights are, what, to can, what you can expect. Know when you can cast a provisional ballot, um, what, what you might expect and what you can do about it when you encounter it before you get to your polling station. Um, and, you know, in, also, go as early as possible. I just think the more informed and careful you are, the more likely your vote will get counted and these efforts will fail. I would add to that, not only should you vote, but you should make sure that all your friends and family vote. Getting out the vote is going to be key to this election. And so it's important that we have high turnout. The numbers are obvious there are more Democrats in America than there are Republicans. And if the turnout is equal in both sides, then the Democrats are going to win. And I think that's one of the things that we need to do. The other thing is, if you're a lawyer, you can volunteer to help on election day with answering questions from people who call in saying, I just found out that I was kicked off the voter rolls for whatever reason. And you can help. In fact, in many states, you don't even have to be a lawyer. There is training available for you to help. You can also be a poll watcher. There's been a problem with getting enough poll watchers in some areas. Um, so that's another thing that you can do to volunteer. Uh, you can also volunteer to get people to the polls who have um, not got cars, for example. You can drive people. There's efforts being made by many uh, members of Congress to help in their districts. So those are things that you can do. Um, Robert Hubble has a daily newsletter and he has listed a whole lot of things. And I will 
post that episode of or his his newsletter that lists all the different places that you can volunteer and get help um, in making this election a free and fair. That's one. all great advice. I know not everybody has time to do those things, but even just driving a neighbor to the polls, if, if they can't get there themselves. I once had one of these assignments where I was a driver you know, for people who needed rides at a polling place. And I was assigned to a particular polling place. And then when people indicated how, I don't know how, how the request came in that they needed a ride, I was one of the people who would go out and pick them up and bring them to the polls. And it was really rewarding to be able to do that. You know, a lot of seniors and other people who were not otherwise mobile. And so it's, uh, it's very gratifying to help people vote. And I would just say one more thing. Um, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law puts out a, a hotline number every election day that people can call if they see something, if they see any sort of voter suppression efforts, if they are having some trouble. And that's a good way to uh, get some help or to, to let them know what's going on. It's an, organi an organization that used to be run by the now uh, Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark. And we will post that hotline number in our show notes as well. So I just want to ask all of you first, what stood out to you uh, based on however much of those five hours you listened to most? I'll start with you, Barb. What do you think uh, one takeaway is from these uh, arguments that took place? The thing that struck, struck me, Kim, was uh, Justice Clarence Thomas's uh, reaction to the diversity argument. Um, you know, keep in mind that the precedent in this case is um, Grutter versus Bollinger, which came out of the University of Michigan Law School where I teach. And in that case, the Supreme Court found that diversity is a compelling governmental interest. And so, you know, when you have a compelling governmental interest, that means that certain rights are not absolute, that if you use race as a factor, uh, you know, you are engaging in discrimination, absolutely, but it's permissible if it meets what's known as strict scrutiny, which is there is a compelling governmental interest and the program is narrowly tailored to achieve that interest. And in that case, the court held that diversity was such a compelling governmental interest because universities have an interest in making sure their educational experiences for all of their students are at the highest level possible. And diversity is a big part of that, bringing in people with different backgrounds and experiences and perspectives adds to the educational value for all of their students. So that was settled uh, in, in the Gruder case, you know, in what, 1993 or whenever it was. And so what Justice Thomas says is, we're hearing all of this talk. Everybody's talking about diversity. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Why are we talking about diversity in here? What? <laughs> I thought that was just crazy. Like, well, one, go read the case, Justice Thomas. But even if you don't, so if you don't know what it means, well, then maybe you should leave that to the professionals at, in, in higher education who do know what it means and think it is very valuable, that it is a compelling governmental interest. So that one just blew me away. But, you know, it was said in a very pejorative way uh, as if to disparage it, that it's not, you know, a legitimate thing. And um, that, that really ticked me off. Yeah. And we, I mean, we know his game. I mean, he's somebody who has been vocally against affirmative action for a long time, making what I believe is a total bogus claim that affirmative action actually perpetuates racial discrimination and makes black and brown people feel bad about ourselves. I guarantee you, I do not feel bad about myself, but the existence 
<laughs> of affirmative action. It's also just woe is me. Also, just a little point uh, of history that I learned some time ago. Uh, the justice, who is a graduate of Holy Cross um, in Massachusetts, was the recipient at the time of that school's very first Martin Luther King Memorial Scholarship that they granted to encourage more students of color to apply to the school. Hmm. Sounds a little bit like affirmative action to me, but you know. Hmm. Jill, what stood out most to you? So I think if I had to pick one moment in this, it would be um, Katanji Brown-Jackson saying that the legacy benefits argument kind of works the wrong way. And her point, and it, it's a very long discussion, so I'm not going to go through the Q&A that she said, but it was basically, it's okay if you're a legacy because your white rich family has always attended this school and we'll take that into account because it didn't hurt you, it helped you. But if you're talking about your legacy uh, as the child of a enslaved person, that can't be considered because that's over and done with, that's gone. We don't need to care about that. And I just thought her argument was wonderful. And of course you have to put this in the context of, she has recused herself from the Harvard case. So this was, she made this comment in the North Carolina arguments where she is not recused. And she recused herself because she attended Harvard, which so did many of the other members of the court, um, but also because she was on the board of overseers. And so that's why she recused herself. And that's probably the right decision. But obviously there's no consequences for not recusing when you should, Justice Thomas. I'm speaking to you. So um, that was the thing that stood out to me was that it's, it's okay if your being white is a benefit but not if the, being a person of color yeah. is a disadvantage. Yeah, it really was a powerful exchange. And she also, Jill, I'm glad you brought up the point that she, as the newest justice, is also demonstrating how ethics should work by uh, recusing from that case because of her previous connection. You know, the thing, one of the things that stood out, so much stood out, but one of the things that stood out to me was when Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger, um, who, another funny little story, I don't, did I mention this before? We were both interns at the Boston Globe at the same time, summer interns, 20 some odd years ago, and we actually lived together that summer. Wow. <laughs> and now she's Solicitor General, so. And she's brilliant. She's done fabulously in every argument she's been in. Yeah, so she... Was she a brilliant roommate, Kim? She, she was brilliant roommate. She's always brilliant. Hi, Liz, <laughs> if you're listening. Um, so, uh, but she brought up a point about the military because she was arguing uh, on behalf of the government, the federal government who was backing Harvard and UNC. And one of the points she was making was that the service academies and ROTC programs also need to be diverse. Like race has to be considered to ensure that they're diverse too. Um, and... Those, if affirmative action goes out of the door, so do so does uh, the ability of the the Pentagon to ensure that they have a diverse service members in their rank and file. And that brings me to um, Jill. I want to ask you, based on that point, um, there are affirmative, there is affirmative action in the service academies. Race is considered in the schools like Harvard that have ROTC programs, um, as you the first woman to serve as U.S. counsel to the Army. What do you think? Why is it important to have that diversity in these programs? And are you worried that they could be under attack too? 
I am worried that it could be under attack. I'm also worried that workplace diversity could be under attack yeah. as well. Uh, so it's it could be a much broader problem than just university admissions. Um, but diversity in the military and in the military academies and in the JROTC and ROTC programs in high schools and colleges is important for a number of reasons. And I'll, I'll mention two in particular. One is that the burden of service in a volunteer army, a volunteer military, should fall equally on all people. And um, I, this goes back to when the draft was first eliminated and I was general counsel of the army shortly after that. There was a fear that the service was becoming very heavily uh, people of color and that whites weren't enlisting. And in order to achieve the kind of diversity so that in the time of war, the burden of protecting our country falls equally, you need to have a diverse a military. But also the opportunity to serve should be equally available. And when I look at some of the young soldiers that I met in traveling the country and overseas while I was general counsel, many people use the educational benefits, the training that they get in, in service as a way to escape of an inadequate background. And that opportunity needs to be available to men and women, to people of color. It's only available if there is diversity in the training academies and in the service and in enlistment. So the, the third thing I guess I would say is that issues change when you have a diverse environment in the military. The things that are important and the viewpoints that are brought to bear differ when you have, and the same is true in corporate America, when there are women on the boards, the issues that are considered are different. Um, one of the things I'm proudest of was the elimination of the Women's Army Corps while I was general counsel, which opened up the positions in the military. There were only two women who could be generals under the wax because that's all that there was. Every other general slot was in the regular army. By eliminating wax and putting women into the regular army, women could be, oh, for example, the judge advocate general, the head of all the lawyers for the army. Um, and things like sexual harassment, sexual assault, get different attention when there are women leaders in the military. Yeah. And so, and the opportunities are, you know, hey, that general looks like me. I could be a general. So I think for all those reasons, but those three in particular, we need to have a diverse applicant pool. Yeah, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about the private sector uh, in just a second. But first, one thing that struck me about what General Prelogger said, Barb, is that diversity in the military isn't just a compelling interest. She called it a national security issue. You are our resident uh, national security expert here, uh, Professor McQuaid. Explain to us what's the national security implications of diversity in the military. Well, there are a couple. One is just making sure we have sufficient people in the military. And so 
Uh, one of the things we see now is that uh, people enter the military in fairly diverse numbers, uh, but they tend not to stay in a career. And so uh, what do we need to do there to try to encourage uh, greater recruiting and greater retention uh, of people of color? And the reason that you need that, um, according to a senior advisor in the Department of Defense, is that we need uh, the kinds of ideas, the best ideas come when you have um, d diverse people, diverse backgrounds, diverse perspectives to come up with innovative thoughts and solutions to complex problems. And so, you know, if everybody uh, is has the same worldview, uh, they end up in an echo chamber and they end up uh, looking at problems in the same way. It's useful to have people who have family members from other parts of the world, for example, when you're thinking about uh, how to deal with situations um, in the Middle East or uh, other places, Russia, elsewhere. Um, it's useful to have all of those different perspectives at the table. And so um, the, the military is a big advocate, as Jill said, of affirmative action um, to ensure that we have the kind of diversity that makes our national security strong. You know, could I just add that in the early days of desegregation, the military was one of the leaders in bringing about desegregation of the military forces, and it led to a good role model for the rest of society. So I think the military deserves some credit for that and can show the way again. Yeah. You know, outside of the military, I actually wrote um, a column as I was listening to the arguments um, because it seemed clear to me that affirmative action is going down at the court. Um, but what it sounded to me is that other organizations could be next outside of education. So just to be clear, the, the basis of these challenges is one, constitutionally, that the 14th Amendment, which was passed after the Civil War to help efforts at reconstruction, y'all, it was it was passed explicitly to allow Congress to pass race-specific laws aimed at helping black people stop being discriminated against. It was aimed to fight racism. Anyway, um, but, the, but the, the challenge is saying now, oh, no, it prohibits the consideration of race. So if you're considering race even as one factor, that's a no-no constitutionally. They're also claiming that Title VI, uh, schools that accept Title VI uh, federal funding, that statute also bars discrimination on the basis of race and that it bars both. But there are this, there's the same 14th Amendment for public sector employers and there's also uh, uh, federal law, Title VII, that bars discrimination on the basis of race for any private employer that might accept federal funding like a hospital or that's a contractor like Raytheon or Boeing. They have to abide by that as well. Um, and so I think challenges are going to come to all of these other employers that are doing things like diversity inclusion program. How many of our listeners have employers that are now uh, focused on diversity and inclusion within their newsroom? This can affect programs within schools beyond admissions. This can affect the military, as we talked about, police departments, all of these things. Uh, Justice Kagan brought that up. And then after I filed my column, I found out that Stephen Miller, remember him? The guy who was behind uh, some of the, the Trump policies like the Muslim ban and the separation of children from their parents and remain in Mexico, that guy. Uh, well, he has a legal organization that is not only filing the very kinds of lawsuits that I'm talking about, uh, but also releasing ads ahead of the election that push this narrative that white people are the ones being discriminated against in America. They're really gross. So <laughs> A... 
two-part question. One, do you think that uh, if the result of this affirmative action challenge case is what we think it will be, A, will it be used to bring challenges like the one Stephen Miller's organization uh, is bringing and make them be successful? And two, what can employers and others who may be uh, defendants in these kind of challenges do in the meantime to protect their interest in keeping diverse workplaces and classrooms and other places? Barb, what do you think? Well, first, I I, I don't think this will be the end of it, right? They start with... Um, uh, higher education, and then we're going to see challenges in other sectors of life. Just as you know, after Dobbs, that's not the end of it. We're going to see challenges for every kind of right that is protected by substantive due process, like marriage equality and others. And so, I think when it comes to affirmative action, right now we're seeing it in higher education. But you know, public contracting, where there are uh, programs designed to um, uh, give programs for like women-owned businesses and minority-owned businesses. Um, uh, you mentioned police departments where diversity is so critically important. Having the diversity that reflects the communities that you serve is so important. And I could see, you know, some of that going away. Um, if, you know, think of any public sector place, and I think there could be an issue there. I think the private sector is probably in decent shape, although I suppose it, uh, it ripens things for employment discrimination to say, you know, because so-and-so is part of this diversity, equity, and inclusion program, uh, somehow that discriminated against me in the workplace. So you could see those kinds of allegations as well. So I, I think everything is, is open season. And, and what can people do about it? You know, in Michigan, we've actually lived without affirmative action in higher education because in response to the Grutter versus Bollinger decision that came in 2003, um, the state passed a ballot initiative that said um, educational institutions cannot use race as a basis for admissions. And so some of the things that um, are being done in Michigan, I know, is just working really hard to cast a wide net to do a lot of recruiting, um, you know, to have... Um, assistance programs and tutoring programs that are open, um, but it's it's hard. It's a heavy lift, and you know, my I, I have a very unscientific method, but just looking around classrooms in Michigan, they seem less diverse to me now than they were 30 years ago when I was in school. Jill, what do you think? You already gave a couple I, ideas. But what else do you think? I, I, I yeah, I think in addition to what I've already, well, I think one Barbara is absolutely correct that it's already happening. Stephen Miller is not going to let this rest. And neither will other groups that are bound and determined to end any form of affirmative action. So it's going to happen. And if this goes the way it is, of course, it depends on how broadly written the opinion is. If it's narrow enough, maybe it won't be substantial grounds for tearing down other programs. But if it's broadly written, it will be. Um, and so I think we have to worry about that. In terms of what companies can do, uh, one, they can be good employers who will attract a diverse group. I think businesses do have the ability to make the argument that it is in their business interests to have a diverse workforce, to have a diverse board, because what will sell depends on what their man, you know, depends on having the input of the audience they're trying to reach. 
And I know that all the evidence in research shows that diversity is a very big positive for profitability. So I'm hoping that they will continue to fight this and that business organizations will continue to, to fight and win and be able to put an end to this kind of nonsense that's fighting against this. Every week, the sisters struggle to limit our podcast to just three topics. This week was no exception. But in addition, on the topic of legal challenges facing Trump and his organization, it was hard to come up with a limited number of questions that would fit within a one segment (laughs) because there are so many this week. And as interesting as all of them are, I've tried to limit it so we could keep it to a 15-minute segment. So I'm going to start with you, Kim. So first is related to the Manhattan DA's ongoing criminal tax fraud trial against the Trump Organization, where the jurors were told that the case is about greed and cheating, and the former CFO, Weisselberg, is about to testify. Uh, There is, in addition, a New York attorney general. She has brought, Tish James, has brought a civil case, which some say could put Trump out of business. And um, let's talk about in that case. And what's happened in that case is that the attorney general has now gotten appointed an independent monitor to oversee the Trump organization and to prevent them from transferring assets to a newly formed corporation, not in New York, clearly intended, I think, to prevent uh, the attorney general winning this case and getting the damages that she is seeking. And so talk about that, but also talk about the lawsuit that Donald Trump filed <laughs> in Florida against the Attorney General of New York because she was invading his privacy by, you know, he'd have to disclose who the beneficiaries of his trust are, and God knows that could upset his children if it's not them, um, or which of them gets more. Um, and talk about whether that's a frivolous lawsuit and what's going to happen in that case. Yeah, so to this uh, independent monitor um, who uh, who was uh, appointed at the request of Attorney General James, I think that that was a brilliant idea for a lot of reasons. One, as you pointed out, the primary reason for it is to stop any shenanigans. You know Donald Trump cares about this company and his money more than anything at all. And so you already know that there are, efforts underway, which is what Attorney General James said, already to try to get around any potential judgment that is rendered against this company to try to hide the money, move the funds. Um, There are all kinds of banking, perhaps bankruptcy, kind of all kinds of shenanigans that the organization could engage in to try to avoid paying whatever judgment, to try to split itself up and incorporate in other states uh, in the event that it is shut down in New York. And what this independent monitor will do is keep an eye on that and let the attorney general know and let relevant authorities know if they see any evidence of that kind of evasion or efforts to get around justice in place. 
which is really important. Uh, one thing I think it also does is you see in the way that uh, Trump lies about everything that is going on with every piece of litigation against him, that it's politically motivated, that they're doing things illegally, that they're doing this, that, and the other. Well, if you have an independent monitor taking a look at what's happening, it makes it a lot harder to say that. It makes it a lot harder to make claims like this second ridiculous lawsuit suit that was filed that th this is honestly this is the lawsuit the claim is that Tish Shames by doing her job <laughs> as attorney general is trespassing on Trump's privacy do you know how poorly what a poor job that does of passing the giggle test people on Trump's <laughs> own legal team were telling <laughs> other lawyers don't file this lawsuit it will be frivolous I don't want to put my name on this lawsuit I don't want to face disciplinary actions or or this is malpractice. Like, no. Yet the lawsuit was filed anyway. Some of the attorneys still filed this suit that uh, somehow New York's attorney general is trespassing on Donald Trump's privacy by enforcing the laws of New York State. That, of course, is nonsensical. So I, you have to point out that the reason that they the attorney general was able to get the monitor was because she was able to establish a pattern of fraud yes. that exists. <laughs> and so in order to stop further continuation of this pattern of fraud, there is a monitor. And of course, it didn't help that he, on the same day as the suit was filed, created a new company, Trump Organization 2, out of New York. <laughs> how can we, at least he came up with a different name. I mean, it's good so creative. <laughs> Man, that was so dumb. I can't believe it. Okay, so anyway, um, I think let's move on, Barb, to <laughs> subpoenas. Okay, this has been a big week for subpoenas that have impacted a number of cases. Um, Mar-a-Lago, Cash Patel got immunity. And so I have a couple questions about that. He's already testified now. Um, and we've heard some reporting about what happened there. We'll talk about that. But first of all, he got use immunity. And just Let's start with that basic thing. Uh, we, of course, all know what use immunity is versus transactional immunity, but let's set the, the table for our audience and talk about um, what the difference is and whether it was wise to use use immunity here and what do we know about what uh, Cash Patel will testify, has testified to. Um, and based on your experience in national security, about whether the president could have declassified, because remember, he's the one who said, oh, he just did everything. Um, and he said that, but not under oath. Will he say that under oath? I, I wonder. And whether it matters in terms of the laws that the search warrant says he violated, does it matter whether they were de uh, declassified? Yeah, so Cash so Patel- that's a lot of questions. Yeah. Cash Patel was somebody who worked in the Trump administration. He's a lawyer. He's a former DOJ lawyer, in fact. And he was designated by Donald Trump as his representative with the National Archives in June of last year. And at that time, the members of the public had no idea what that meant or why that was relevant. But turns out that's right around the time that um, the Justice Department was serving a subpoena on Donald Trump to say, give back all the Mar-a-Lago documents. So Cash Patel has been involved in this dispute since that time. Um, and he has made public statements that the documents were all declassified and that in fact, he was present when Donald Trump declassified them. So that's really interesting. And the Justice Department wanted to ask him about that. He, he came to the grand jury, he invoked his Fifth Amendment right 
against self-incrimination and the Justice Department challenged it, which is really odd. Jill, have you ever challenged someone's assertion of their Fifth Amendment right? Never, yeah, never. You know, you, you get it as long as there is a, um, a good faith belief that your answers will expose you to criminal prosecution. Well-grounded well fear, I think is the phrase. And so usually if somebody invokes it, you know, you say, okay, close enough. Um, it's interesting that they said, you know, that's nonsense, come in and testify. But they went before a judge and the judge agreed that there was. And so the reporting is now that he did get immunity and has testified. And it's not clear to me, um, I know it says use immunity, whether this was pursuant to a compulsion order, which gives use and derivative use immunity. And I'll explain what that is in a minute versus um, a negotiated immunity, which could be something less. Um, I know I've read the, the phrase I saw in the uh, press was limited use immunity, which is not really a category. Um, but in contrast, Jill, you asked about transactional immunity. That's very rare. The only witness I'm aware of ever getting it is Monica Lewinsky, um, who negotiated for transactional immunity, which means she cannot be prosecuted for anything relating to the transaction about which she testifies. That is a very, very broad grant of immunity. Instead, what prosecutors usually give is... Uh, use immunity, which is an agreement, we will not use your statements against you in any prosecution against you. So the person still could be prosecuted. It's just the case that his own statements that were provided to the government cannot be used in evidence against him. If you get a compulsion order, which I think it may have happened here, then the statute says not only do you get use immunity, but you also get something called derivative use immunity. And that is where it gets really tricky because derivative use immunity means not only can I not use your statements against you, but I can't use it for lead purposes. I can't use any evidence that may have been derived from your testimony. So, you know, if somebody confesses to robbing a bank and says, I robbed the bank and I buried the money in the backyard, you can still go dig in the backyard and get the money and show that there was money found in the backyard as part of your case. You just can't use a statement that says, I, I robbed the bank and buried the money in the backyard. If you have derivative use immunity, then you can't use either of those things. The statement, because that's use immunity, and the, the digging up of the money was derived from that statement. So you can't use that either. This is what got the government in trouble in the Oliver North prosecution. When he testified before Congress, he got a grant of immunity before Congress. He told the whole story of the Iran-Contra affair. And then he got prosecuted for um, obstruction of Congress and uh, accepting uh, a, a bribe and some other things. He was convicted and it was ultimately thrown out. And the reason was that the judge um, found that you could not be sure that the witnesses against him at trial had not been in some indirect, even subconscious way, had been affected by his public testimony because it was so public, it was so pervasive, it was so difficult to avoid. And it's the government that has the burden of proving that its evidence is independent of the statement. So that's pretty tricky. So as a result of all of that, once you give someone immunity, it's pretty hard to charge them. So essentially you're punting on the prosecution of that individual, of Cash Patel in this case. But sometimes you have to... Um, uh, you know, uh, sacrifice a small fish to go after the big one. You have to sacrifice the snapper to grab the shark, Jill, um, <laughs> depending on the situation. And so he did come in and testify. I imagine the questions they asked him were about classification, um, declassification, could he declassify? You know, if you ascribe to this um, unitary executive theory, then the president can do anything, but only while he is in office. And there is a process for declassifying. He can express a desire to declassify something, um, but 
It, it requires having the intelligence community actually execute that order. And if he didn't communicate it to anybody, you know, as he says, I can declassify just by thinking about it. If he doesn't communicate it to anybody, then I don't think it has the effect of being declassified. So we'll see. And I think the other reason you put someone like Cash Patel into the grand jury is find out everything he knows um, and lock him into a story. You know, at least tell us what your version of the facts are now. And that makes it more difficult for him down the road when there's a trial in a year or two years to fabricate a new story. So that's another reason to, to lock him in. Okay, so I, um, I just want to point out that John Dean did get immunity from the Senate when he testified. And we were able to prosecute him. And again, it is the burden of the government to find either something that he didn't testify about, which in the case of his days of testimony was pretty hard to do, or that you have a historic record of, yeah. this is what we knew before mm -hmm. he testified. Right. And we're only gonna use the evidence we had before he testified that's documented and mm -hmm. there's no question about it. Yep, put a date um, on that. Make sure you have exactly. it before the testimony. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but you didn't answer the, the, the last question, which was, does it matter whether these are declassified or not in terms of the laws that he's uh, supposedly violated under the search warrant? So probably not. The, um, the search warrant used statutes that do not require de uh, classification as an element. One was the mishandling of government documents, no requirement that they be classified, just that they be government documents. One, a violation of the Espionage Act, which makes it a crime to willfully uh, retain documents that pertain to the national defense, does not refer to classification. And the other is obstruction of justice, which is uh, you know, retaining or concealing documents that the government has requested in an investigation. So all of those three are fair game regardless of classification. Right. I suppose if they are classified and not declassified, that brings an additional um, offense available for mishandling classified information, but I don't think they need it. And if there's going to be this squabble over whether something was or wasn't declassified or whether Trump believed that it had been declassified, then it seems easier to just take that off the table as they did in that search warrant application. Exactly. Um, all right, I, I, there's at least three other subpoenas I want to talk about, but we're going to run out of time. So I'm, this is going to be like a lightning round, Barbara. Um, Fulton County, Lindsey Graham, um, uh, Thomas granted, but then the Supreme Court rejected his request to block based on speech and debate clause, his Fulton County testimony. Um, so just quickly just identify what his possible argument for speech and debate getting him out of testifying and what the DA really wants from him, why, why it's important that he testify. Well, he's already made this argument up and down all of the courts that uh, the speech or debate clause, which says a person cannot be questioned about um, in any other place outside of Congress for uh, any matter the person has said you know, during speech and, or debate on the, the floor of Congress. Um, you know, the idea is that we don't want people getting uh, persecuted, cross-examined uh, about their legislative work. Um, and what Fonnie Willis has said is, I don't want to ask him about legislation. I want to ask him about election interference, about calling up Brad Raffensperger and trying to pressure him to change the outcome of the election. So he's played this card, I think, as far as he can go. And the judge has said, if there is a specific question that pertains to some matter of legislation, he can still object to that particular question, but otherwise get in there and answer the questions. Okay, and I'm just gonna mention, of course, there's um, two White House lawyers, Pat Cipollone and uh, Patrick Philbin, who have both been subpoenaed and 
you know, have raised attorney-client privilege, executive privilege, um, and that's, you know, for them to testify against Trump. And then, of course, there is the Trump subpoena, which his lawyers accepted um, the service of. And so he now is under subpoena to produce documents uh, shortly after the midterms and to testify about a week later. So anything you want to say about those subpoenas? Uh, I'll just say on the subpoena to testify before the January 6th committee, um, I'll be very surprised if it ever comes to fruition. I think he'll stall as long as possible. And I think right now he's probably hoping that if the midterm elections go to the Republicans, then the committee will be disbanded and he can get away without ever testifying. Yeah, exactly. So, all right, Kim, in other bad legal news for Donald (laughs) Trump this week, we have the Eastman emails and what they reveal about the broader picture of January 6th and the overall coup attempt uh, and possibly the role of Justice Thomas. So talk about that. Yeah, this is another uh, bad legal moves. <laughs> it, it falls within that category. So I, I, I bet some of our listeners have read reports about emails uh, surrounding this January 6th plot that uh, have people within Trump circle discussing how Mike Pence can deny uh, the election certification. And uh, even if he doesn't, maybe they can make an emergency application to Justice Thomas. Hmm, I wonder who they might have been talking to to give them that idea. Uh, And all he has to do is grant a temporary stay. And that will give them, I guess, the the idea that they could possibly win on the merits, whether they can or not. And that will be just enough, you know, to to get this thing going and get a challenge to um, just get the foot in the door. Remember Trump said, just just cast out and then the members of Congress and I will do the rest. You all read that, right? Of course you did, because it was in Politico. Why was it in Politico? Because John Eastman, when he submitted his filings, he used a drop box link that wasn't protected. So the reporter at Politico clicked it, and now we've all seen these emails. But Eastman is trying to block these, (laughs) I'm sorry, to seal these emails that have already been released. I will call this the doctrine of the toothpaste already being out of the tube, uh, and I don't think that it will be successful. Yeah, and those are really damaging emails. It's quite amazing. So, all right, let's wrap up this week's news uh, about Trump's legal woes. Barb, with Chief Justice Roberts' temporarily delayed release of Trump's tax records to the House. Lawmakers say they need the returns from his time in office to help evaluate how effectively the annual presidential audits are. What do you think the full court is going to do? Um, And Talk about the statute that gives Congress the right to this tax information without even any justification. Yeah, the statute just says that if um, certain committees, including the one that requested it, ask for the information, then the Treasury Secretary of the Treasury shall produce it. So, uh, you know, the idea that's even being litigated is contrary to the uh, plain text of the statute. Uh, sometimes they care about that and sometimes they don't. Um, this case has been up and down in the courts Um, And there was some narrowing of the request. The committee has to show that it has a a legitimate uh, legislative purpose in requesting the documents to avoid, you know, harassing someone for political purposes. They've done that. And they say they want to know about the way Trump did his business because they want to know if they have sufficient protections to safeguard um, the uh, financial uh, 
dealings of, of a president. So they want his tax records for that purpose. It seems to me that it's likely that they have now complied with all of the hoops that the, the courts have put in place and that ultimately the full court will probably just uh, let this, uh, the lower court's decision stand. Um, but the delay is a little concerning because uh, Chief Justice Roberts gave um, the committee until November 10th to respond. So that's gonna be two days after the midterm elections. So this is another one of those scenarios where if the House goes to Republicans, they will seize control of this committee as well and likely dismiss the subpoena. So I think that's going to matter a lot. I think that if um, the House is held by the Democrats, then they're gonna have to move on this. And I don't see any reason for the court to overturn what happened in the courts below. I think uh, we'll get there. So the, the midterms matter for a lot of things, including this one. And democracy. <laughs> We have come to what is truly our favorite part of every episode, our listener questions. If you have a question for us, you can email them to us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. That's why it's our name. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye out on our Twitter feeds where we sometimes answer many of your questions right there. So the first question comes from Richard in Gilbert, Arizona. Hello, Arizona. We've getting a lot of Arizonans love there. You, you don't get an extra hour this weekend. I'm so sorry. Richard asks, what exactly is the actual function of the chief justice compared to their peers? This is a good question. So in the vast majority of the job, uh, the job aspects of the chief justice, the job is exactly the same as the other eight justices. The only difference, the only differences, I should say, are administrative mostly. So the chief justice has a few extra jobs. For example, during oral arguments, he's the one who gavels in the oral arguments. He's the one if, you know, if two justices are asking a question at the same time, he will say, okay, well, Justice Sotomayor, you go first and then Justice Thomas go or, or whatever, things like that. He's the one who announces that there is an opinion that will be delivered that day from the court or that orders are granted. He has a lot of administrative jobs like that. But when it comes to doing the job, he is one of nine votes. His votes get his vote is, carries just as much weight as anyone else. Um, he decides who writes an opinion if he is in the majority in that particular case. But if he's not, he doesn't. It would be the most senior justice in the majority of that particular case who makes the decision. So for example, in the Dobbs decision, the chief justice did not join Alito's opinion. So it was actually Clarence Thomas who made the decision that Alito would write the Dobbs decision, for example. And he also has some other external jobs. For the, for example, if a president is impeached, not other impeachments necessarily, but the Constitution holds that if the president is impeached, that the chief justice shall preside over it. That's why uh, Chief Justice Roberts presided over the first impeachment of Donald Trump, because that took place while he was president and not the second one that took place afterwards. I think he also has like honorary titles at the Smithsonian stuff. But when it comes to how the court works, his job is by and large exactly the same as all the other justices. Our next question comes from Maureen, who asks, if I understand correctly, 
a federal grand jury is required for indictment of federal crimes. Does that mean a state crime can just be charged by the district attorney for trial without the need of a grand jury at the local state level? Uh, Jill, do you know the answer to that? Well, I know in Illinois that it's pretty much the same thing. The Constitution and laws of Illinois require that no one be brought to trial for a crime punishable by imprisonment unless there was either a grand jury indictment, meaning that a grand jury reviewed the evidence and found that there was probable cause to have someone tried for this, or there can be a preliminary hearing before a judge and the judge can find probable cause. So it's sort of the same thing. It's just a question of whether it's a grand jury or the judge who makes that determination. And I think that's pretty much true in other states. But Barb, do you know about Michigan? Our third and last question comes from Margaret. Would y'all consider getting off Twitter now that Musk owns it and has already posted false information? Do any of you have a red line? I want to get Barb's thoughts on this. I will just say quickly, and some of our listeners may have already noted, before Elon Musk bought Twitter, I kind of was doing a slow fade just for my own mental health. I found that the less time I spend on Twitter, the better my mental health is. And so I actually didn't, other people have told me about this fee for blue checks and all this other stuff that may be happening. I actually don't know because I haven't been on Twitter very much. If some of you um, may have noted that. Um, so that kind of answers part of the question. I just think that Twitter's become a, an, um, just an angry outrage modifier. Um, but Barb, what about you? What do you think you're doing? Yeah, I think I'm going to wait and see. Um, I'm not ready to cede the space to the haters in the world. I mean, it's it's a community. It's a place where people talk. It has not yet been replicated for me in any other place. I absolutely have concerns about Elon Musk. I mean, he is a First Amendment absolutist, which is certainly not what uh, the Constitution requires that you look at it in a vacuum. But I worry that it is, you know, he said he's not going to let it become what are you, a, a toxic hellscape or something. He said, well, we'll see. Um, you know, if it becomes a place where people engage in threats of political violence and things like that, then absolutely not. I'm uh, disgusted by what he said about uh, Paul Pelosi, you know, uh, perpetuating some of the uh, just disinformation about the attack on him, which I find just absolutely disgusting. But um, the world's a complicated place, and I don't know that it's black and white enough to say, if Elon Musk is in, I'm out. Um, you know, I, I, I like Twitter because it is a place where I find articles I would not otherwise find. It is a place where I can share articles that I have written. It's a place where I can engage in conversation with people. Uh, I think there's a community of people there that I, you know, I, that I've sort of met on Twitter that I haven't met elsewhere. I, we have a community of listeners that. Uh, are active on Twitter that uh, I communicate with. And then there's also just, you know, funny dog videos and some funny things. Rex Chapman has a pretty funny feed. And I don't know if you guys know World of Dogs. I, I look at World of Dogs every day and there's some like really cute dog video. I suppose I could find that on other platforms. But um, all, all of that is a long way of saying that n not yet. And, you know, the question is, do I have a red line? I, I don't know. But if there is, you know, if it becomes so toxic, if it becomes a place where we see the normalization of hate speech. Um, it, you know, right now they have, or at least until recently, community standards. And 
they would flag and things for violence. They would kick people off for violence. I'll be really curious to see whether Donald Trump is let back on. Um, so all of those things will factor in. Uh, you know, I, I will, I will decide as we go, and I have not yet decided. And I'm with Barb on that. I think that it has become a really important civic engagement tool. And I've had some really wonderful conversations with people on Twitter, um, mostly politics and, and law. But today I traded a recipe for eggplant parmesan. Um, and so it's, and dog videos are big on my agenda as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it would be awful to let it become a one-sided false narrative tool. And so I want to stay on as long as it is not toxic to me personally and um, hopefully maintain some semblance of good fact-based discussion. Yeah, I think that the points that you both made are really important. Um, I think that last point that Jill brought up sort of highlights some of it for me. It's very difficult for me to follow, you know, the dog content and other stuff that I really enjoy on Twitter if I'm having uh, insults and racial epithets thrown at me constantly. Um, I, I, it was a choice that I already made, um, at least started to make long before, as I said, Elon Musk took over. But uh, it's really a reflection of the times that we're in, unfortunately. And that has increased since Elon Musk took over. I will certainly say that. But luckily, I have hardened myself to that. And in the beginning, when I got nasty things, it really hurt me. And now it doesn't, because I know that those are mostly trolls. They aren't even real people. And if they're real people, they're really too stupid to be bothered by. And so I just am no longer bothered by those kinds of silly comments. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Jill Weinbanks, and me, Kimberly Atkins Store. Joyce Vance will be back next week. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue tea, that's a favorite, or our hoodie, it's getting cold, or our pins that Jill loves, or all kinds of other goodies. And please support this week's sponsors. HelloFresh, Policy Genius, Cameron Hughes Wines, Calm and Thrive Cosmetics. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really make this show happen. And remember, share your biggest learnings or takeaways from the show with us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm still on Instagram, y'all. Um, for our upcoming 100th full episode using hashtag SistersInLaw100. That's hashtag SistersInLaw100. We can't wait to hear what you have to say. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show and we like to see it too. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag SistersInLaw. So what, are you really going to go swimming? With I don't sharks? think I'll swim with the sharks, but I, I would try it. I would. I love the ocean Even so with much. The sharks? I would. I, well, especially I since would. like the the last time I went scuba diving, you know, not scuba diving. Um, what do you call it? Uh, snorkeling. Snorkeling off the boat, and you know, I was just off on my little way looking in all these cool fish, and I got back into the boat and I asked the guy, "What's that big long fish that was out there? It was kind of gray." He's like, "You mean the sharks?" I was like, "What you the what?" 
It's like, oh yeah, there's sharks right there. I'm like, you should have told me that before, but it also released my fear a little bit. Like I've swum with sharks. I was fine. Wow. You know, if I start hearing the theme from Jaws, I know I'm in trouble. <laughs> if we ever go someplace near beach, just keep an eye on me, okay? In Belize, I jumped out of the boat into the water with a bloody finger because I had just been bitten by You were a chum. Fish. And as I, I, I was, well, I was, that's exactly what I was. But I took my hand away from my mask because, you know, when you jump in, you're holding your mask. And I was nose to nose <gasps> with a shark. So I pulled my hand up going, help, help. And my husband went, what? And I said, shark. And he grabbed the camera and jumped in over me, leaving me in the water so that he could get a picture <laughs> of the shark. How did you survive? How did you fight off the shark? Oh, God. I, 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 he didn't, I mean, I, I immediately got the bloody hand out of the water and he, he swam away. Holy he didn't bother shucks. me. I don't know why. I mean, I, I mean, it was just really one of those unbelievable things. We had been fishing and fishing was awful. And so I said, let's just go. I said, the guy whose boat it was, let's go to the reef and we'll just snorkel. And we had our equipment with us. And when we got there, he was throwing chum in and the fish were roiling. <clears throat> and so I said, oh, you know, when you're snorkeling and you go to touch a fish, they are always further away. Could I touch a fish? And he said, sure. So I put my hand in the water and one of the fish mistook it for chum. And it was a snapper, which has teeth that are exactly like our teeth. And so I ended up with a, literally a snapper attached to my <laughs> finger. And I'm like, like a cartoon. <laughs> it was. And then I was like, I'm afraid to jump in. I mean, I'm, my finger's now bleeding. I'm afraid of these fish oh my God. not going in. And everybody said, oh, stop being a baby. And so, okay, okay. So I put on my flippers and I jump in. And then I see the shark. I'm, I'm like, it was one of the worst experiences ever. Jill, you are indeed the most interesting person in the world. 